This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast, where we talk with people who in some way, shape, or form have been influenced by the outdoors. I'm Andy, the producer of this podcast, and my lovely wife, Sarah, will be your host. Together, we make up Hiking Through Life. This podcast is all about bringing all kinds of people who are inspired by the outdoors and sharing their stories. We hope that by sharing people's stories, it inspires others to get out and live a more meaningful life. Tune in every week for new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Hiking Through Life podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Also, if you have a story to share or know of anyone who might be interested in being a guest on this podcast, head on over to hikingthroughlife.net slash podcast and get in touch with us. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Today on the show, we have Mark Merriweather with us. Mark is a nationally known foraging instructor, author, and herbalist, reconnecting people to nature. We are here today to talk about some basic foraging and why it is so difficult in our modern world to live a lifestyle connected to our own roots. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you are sitting outside in beautiful nature right now. Luckily you down in Texas. Yep. Yep. So how did you start your foraging journey? Has this always been a part of your life? Uh, yeah, actually it has been. Both my parents are children of the Great Depression uh, there in Minnesota and St. Michael and down in Iowa. And one of the ways the families got through that terrible time was through, it was common knowledge uh, about the wild edible plants. It was still something everyone knew. And growing up, it was me and my two brothers all born within two years of each other. Every day, take us out in the woods for like an hour or two, let us run around. But during that time, she'd also be saying how her mom and her grandma used these different plants for food and medicine. And then dad also a big, huge outdoorsman. He's 87 now, and he's probably out turkey hunting, right, as we seek. So I threw all his knowledge in. And so it just was something we grew up with. Then uh, I'm a scientist by trade, a chemist. And so I, I knew I was going to be into the science of the plants. It became even more fascinating to me. And it just became an addiction, learning about the chemistry of the plants and how they can be used. And all of a sudden, boom, here I am. <laughs> it just kind of exploded. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's really neat that you grew up that way. Did you find that like most most other people around you were growing up that way too, like with the foraging? So that actually led to some awkward moments in school because I assumed everyone eating weeds on the playground. And other kids are like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's like uh, having lunch. What does it look like? <laughs> you know. So it, uh, yeah, uh, something that I thought was absolutely normal turned out was not. Right, right. Because I mean, it's when you grow up with something like that, especially as a child, like that, that's your world. That does seem normal. But then to outsiders looking in. So, I mean, where did we get to where we are today with like people not, being connected to their roots and everything. Like, how did this come to be in your opinion? It's really due to fear. If you look at the range that kids were allowed to 
roam without their parents, each generation got smaller and smaller. Like my parents, they were allowed to roam 20 miles when they were 12. You know, even me, I was allowed to go 10. But then in the intervening direction, uh, you know, situations that got smaller and smaller as news became more fearful and stuff like that. Right now, everyone thinks all plants are poisonous or just as bad, all plants are loving gifts to us and can be eaten willy-nilly. <laughs> so, you know, trying to find that that halfway point, like, no, there are some good plants and there are some bad plants. Let's 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 figure this out, shall we? Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot due to people just stopped roaming around outdoors because as kids, they weren't allowed to. Right. Absolutely. Like, yeah, what you're taught as a child is gonna, it, it for sure rolls into your adulthood. So, I mean, as a child, were you like, you must've been curious and were just like grabbing leaves off the trees, right? Or did your, were your parents teaching you not to just grab things and throw them in your mouth? Right. There was teaching what was edible. And so they gave me a really good foundation of what they knew. But my own curiosity knew and searched out books like uh, Yule Gibbons and even the Boy Scout Manual. And then I started reading you know, uh, histories of Native American foods and things like that. My parents laid the foundation and then I used other books to guide me because I knew enough to know that don't just randomly eat stuff. Sure, sure. I only made that mistake once. That actually was with a grasshopper. A grasshopper. You, you accidentally ate this? No, 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 no. So, okay. I keep forgetting I'm dealing with Americans here. The eating of insects is very common all around the world. The basically Americans are one of the few that don't. And through my time with the oil industry, I spent a lot of time overseas and you know, discovered all sorts of really interesting insects that people were eating. Um, and so that just became more food and uh, like locusts over in the Middle East and so forth, they're food. In the US at one point, I was on a canoe trip and found some really big, slow moving grasshoppers. And then, oh, what the hell? I mean, they were good over in the Middle East. Let's try them here. Uh, in the Middle East, they don't have poison ivy and they don't have grasshoppers that survive on poison ivy. So, oops. So, I mean, yeah, that, what's your what's your rule for being able to like try something, especially for someone who's never been a forager? Because I mean, I can't say that I would just go out and eat a grasshopper or any plant for that matter, really. I don't know a lot about foraging. So what's like a good rule of thumb for people who don't know anything about this? Okay, so I get asked that a lot. And here's the thing, there isn't a good rule of thumb to tell you if a plant is edible or not just by looking at it or smelling it or anything like that. What I really recommend people do if they wanna start learning the edible plants around them, the first step is start learning the plants around them. Start on your doorstep and identify all the trees around you. You know, you know the oaks, the maples, the pines, because trees are generally very easy to identify. There are a lot of good apps now that allow the, you know, just take a picture of the leaf and it'll tell you what tree it is. And then, then you go to Google or DuckDuckGo or whichever search engine and put in maple tree edible. And you'll get the sap, but you'll also learn that the young leaves are edible. You'll learn that the inner bark, the cambium layer is edible. The helicopter seeds are edible identifying the plants around you and then seeing what edible powers they have. It's uh, way easier, way faster to learning the plants than just taking say my book or the Peterson's Guide to Wild Edibles or something out into the woods and going, I'm gonna learn wild edibles. Cause then you look at the sea of green around you and it becomes overwhelming and you go, I can't do this and go home. So you, know, you got this book that you carried with you out in the woods. So start on your doorstep, start in your yard, start at the park down the street 
identify the trees first and see what edible medicinal properties they have, especially landscaping bushes. Take a picture of it, you go to the nursery and say, what is this? And they'll go, well, it's Eliagnus. And you look up Eliagnus and it's like, whoa, the berries are edible. So, you know, you, you start by identifying the plants there in front of you and figure what you have and go from there rather than searching for edible plants and medicinal plants, much less frustrating that way. Yeah, that sounds- I just sounds... put myself out of a job, but so be it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a much easier way to go about it because I know like when I'm out hiking, I just like, I, it'd be awesome to like forage for things, but it can be a little like scary to just look at all these leaves and not know a single thing about them. And like you just said, then I just, I'm worried and I don't want to eat anything poisonous. So I don't even try. And I'll tell you, Minnesota three months out of the year has amazing selection of food. <laughs> Yeah, I know I've definitely foraged blueberries, the wild blueberries. Okay. I mean, that one's super common. Um, but besides that, I don't venture into many things. So what else should people venture for in the spring and summer here in Minnesota? In Minnesota, the cattails. So there's another name for cattails, a Cossack asparagus. So the young cattail shoots. And when we're talking cattails, you know, the, the, the corn dogs that line the water, you know, don't eat the corn dog part, but the young shoots, you treat those like asparagus. Uh, very soon the pollen will be producing. It's just like this yellow powder coming out in big waves. It looks like smoke. That's real easy to collect. You take like an empty Nalgene bottle, one liter bottle, bend the pollen part of the cattail over and just shake it and go from plant to plant to plant, shake it, and then mix that flower in with your regular pancake batter or whatever flour type base thing you're using uh, to cook with. And you get this really kind of neat cattail, nutty pollen flavor that works like flour sort of thing, but it is gluten-free. The other thing, one of my favorites though with the cattails is the root, the rhizome. So cattails mainly spread by runners and they have these big thick roots that they send out. You dig those up, you cut them off, you throw them on the fire, you char the outside. So you char it, flip it over, char it, peel it and inside it looks like it's filled with a bunch of cotton. It'll be white cotton. You take that cotton, you put it in your mouth and you suck on it. It tastes like graham crackers. The starchy fibers inside the rhizomes of the cattails after it's been roasted, that roasted breaks some of the starch down into sugars and the sugars caramelized. So the end result really does taste just like graham crackers. You suck that flavor off and then you spit out the fiber. So it's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it boggles my mind that people don't know this. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's no cattail out there that would have the potential of being poisonous for anyone. Correct. Correct. So that's the trick. You want to positively identify the plant as a cattail. And for that, I recommend matching five structural features from the plant you're looking at versus whatever guide you're using to identify it. So it's still useful to have, say, again, my book or the Peterson's Guide or something out there to help you determine that what you have is what you have, but match five structural features and you'll be fine. With mushrooms, it's more like eight to 10. Yeah, and I mean, there's mushrooms all around when we're out on the trails in Minnesota here. So that's, so would you say mushrooms there's eight to 10 features that should match up is what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. So before you eat a mushroom, you want to make sure you've matched eight to 10 structural features versus the mushroom guide you're using. Chicken of the woods is one of my favorite because there's nothing else that looks like it. It looks like a bunch of chicken breasts, raw chicken breasts stuck to a tree and coated with that orange Dorito powder. Oh yeah. Yeah. I see those all the time. 
ah, ah, you're killing them. I've I seen those. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, those are I, awesome. I do. I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, chicken of the woods. Just one of the easiest to identify. There's nothing else that looks like it. Like they're kind of like, they, they're long and skinny, like hanging on sides of trees. Yeah, there'd be like, you know, several layers of them usually. And they're kind of lobey. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So those are edible. Oh, yeah. Treat them like a chicken breast. <laughs> Just so take, good. Take them off, roast them over the fire. Yeah, yeah. I like chopping them up in a, in a frying pan, cast iron frying pan with some butter, some garlic, and some parsley. Sounds delicious. I mean, yeah, it's, it is. I think like this, the scariest thing about foraging, like I was saying, is just like the, the unknown and eating something that could be potentially dangerous for you. Yep. And, and here's one other trick or thing you should do. The first time you're eating some plant, even after you believe you properly identified and so forth, have a baggie, put some of the plant uncooked in the baggie with a note, what you think it is, where you found it. If you still you know, misidentified it, you can take it along with you if you're starting to feel sick or something and then poison control, it makes it uh, properly identifying the plant much easier. So there's actually a secret website that uh, emergency personnel and doctors and so forth use. Uh, if they have someone that comes in that thinks they ate a bad mushroom or something like that, that they can quickly contact experts and get it identified for them, so. Oh, fantastic. So, I mean, people should, probably do the foraging if we're new to it try it when we're closer to home and closer to society yeah let some people know <laughs> you know basic hiking rules i'm gonna do something you know out in the woods uh you want to let someone know when right and yeah so i saw on your website too just like some foraging ethics speaking yes. of like hiking ethics and just like leave no trace like let's talk about the foraging ethics Okay. I tell people as a forager, there are four things you need to respect. You need to respect the law. You need to respect the land. You need to respect the plant and you need to respect yourself. And so starting with the law, you need to know the foraging laws of the state where you're at. So like a lot of city parks don't allow foraging uh, just because A, they want all the plants to be nice for everyone to enjoy and look at. Uh, certain states that have uh, more generous uh, foraging laws, their parks are being decimated by it. So like if in Minnesota, you need to know what the rules are there. One of the interesting rules in Minnesota is that in the case of aquatic plants, you are allowed to pull up aquatic plants to make a duck blind for hunting, but you are not allowed to pull up aquatic plants for, for foraging, which is a bummer because you got arrowroot up there, which is absolutely fantastic. But you need to know what the laws in your area are. The second thing, you don't want to have any sign that you were out there. There should be, if you dig some stuff up, you want to fill in the hole again and sprinkle the leaf litter over it. In the case of Respect the Plant, uh, you mentioned my website, foragingtexas.com. There's over 225 plants on there right now. It's mainly Texas specific. It has Texas maps, but also North American maps where you find these plants. Because plants, they don't follow you know, geographic boundaries. They follow uh, ecosystems. But one of the things on there is the abundance code. Is it invasive? Is it plentiful? Is it uh, common, uncommon, rare, or endangered? And that determines how much you can take of the plant. You always want to have a nice sharp pocket knife for pruning shears. You don't want to just tear leaves off a plant because that leaves them open to fungal infection, which will then kill the plant. And then the final one is respect yourself. And that is don't eat anything poisonous. 
And that there's two sides to it. First, do you want to properly identify the plant? So I already mentioned five structural features for plants, eight to 10 structural features for mushrooms to make sure what you think you have is what it is. You wanna make sure the plant was harvested in a safe ecosystem. So in particular, are there any pesticides that have been used around it? Is there any industrial waste? Is there you know, mercury in the water or something like that? So knowing a bit about the land at which the plant is being harvested can give you an idea whether it is actually safe or not to harvest. Fantastic. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider. It sounds like when you go out foraging and it sounds like I wish I could just have a professional with me all the time when we're out foraging. <laughs> and one of the nice things nowadays is there are a lot of professionals out there. People have been teaching for quite a while. So up in Minnesota, just across the border in Wisconsin is Sam Thayer, who is absolutely fantastic. He has three books out that are just uh, almost the Bibles of wild edible plants, especially for up in that area. But again, because plants don't necessarily obey geographic borders, they go where they think they can grow well. So his books are useful everywhere. You just kind of have to adjust the seasons. And like one of the things down here, Texas, uh, the wintertime plants in Texas are actually summertime plants in Minnesota. So it took me a while to, to readjust my mental calendar by the because I go by the plants. So do you guys have like blueberries growing there in the winter, you're saying? Uh, so actually blueberries are very uncommon down here. There's just one or two types are way out in East Texas, but yeah. Um, but more importantly, things like dandelions and wild violets and cleavers, uh, lamb's quarter, the, the normal summertime weeds for you, wood sorrel, are mainly wintertime weeds for, for me uh, down here in Texas. Sure. Yeah. Which, yeah, makes sense. Totally north to south, totally different nations are like totally different landscapes and things to consider. So yeah. And going back and to like, the, yeah, different temperatures. Yeah. Going back to the, the foraging thing and just like the ethics and thinking about the leave no trace rules. It's, it is really sad just seeing how some people are not leaving no trace in the places that they're going to hike. And what have you seen as a forager? Have you seen any people, like when you go out to forage, is it easy to recognize when people aren't following those ethics? Is it a big topic of discussion for foragers now? Oh yeah, very much so. And luckily the people in the classes, at least during the classes, they obey the rules. But one of my favorite occasion, well, favorite slash tragic, I was out with a troop of, of scouts teaching them wild edibles and we were walking down this forest road and up ahead I saw a truck with a company logo unloading a bunch of trash just throwing it there on the side of the road and so we all pulled out our cameras and videoed the person doing that for like five or six minutes and then I walked up and said okay let me explain something to you we have lots of you on video your company logo you a whole bunch of Boy Scouts here watching you what you're doing. Now we're going to watch you clean it all up. And so he spent the next hour dumping it all back into his truck and driving off. And then we still reported it to the police and so forth. And they sent someone to the company to talk to the owner of the company and ask if this is standard practice for the company and things like that. So, Carl, that's yeah. I mean, and you just see like the, they dumped their entire truck of items. That Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a bunch of uh, shingles. It was like a construction company. 
and they had replaced someone's roof. And rather than pay for the disposal of the shingles, the guy just took them out in the woods and was starting to unload them there. Yeah. And you know, yeah, it just, that stuff is happening more and more. I feel like there's been times where I see like shoes and clothes and like mattresses out in, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of the woods. And you know, doesn't it take more effort to do that than to just properly dispose of it? You would think effort, but cost less. So yeah. The other big problem, especially in East Texas and also up in Minnesota, are the meth labs. Oh, and like disposing of all of that stuff out. Yep. Yeah. The propane tanks and the lye and yeah, all that. Yeah. And the chemicals, the acetone. Assuming sure. it's been abandoned and there isn't someone there, you know, cooking up right then. So sure. <laughs> that's one of the things I cover in the classes, you know. If you smell certain things like fingernail polish remover out in the woods, it's time to head back. Well, right, because then those chemicals are going to affect the plants that you're out foraging for. Or worse, the people who are making meth are there and they don't like people seeing them do it. Yeah, that, that's probably another thing to consider. Some illegal activity happening. Yep, yep, yep. So the other thing I would love to talk about is just how has foraging kind of affected your overall lifestyle and healthy eating and just benefited your, yeah, like your mental and physical well-being? Oh, this is a great question. I love this question. So the more you study the wild edible plants, the more you delve into the history of humanity and how we existed. And you quickly realize the world we live in now is very, very, very different than it was even 400 years ago. But if you think about it, we have been evolving for 83,000 generations in the wild before a, you know, a Cub Foods or a, you know, down here we have H-E-B grocery store showed up. So for a majority of our time, we were living much more in tune with nature. And so our bodies evolved to deal with that sort of lifestyle. Now we don't have the same sort of lifestyle and this actually has caused a number of health issues. So let's just start with the brain. There's been a number of really great studies that show the more time you spend out in the wild, walking you know, out in the woods, the symptoms of uh, attention deficit disorders plummet, especially in kids. And the theory, the reasoning is when you're out in the woods, your brain is getting a huge workout because it's all your nerves are being stimulated. So your eyes, your ears, your nose, you're smelling things, you're feeling the wind blow across your skin. Usually if you're out walking in the woods, invariably you pick up a stick and you're playing with the stick and you know, crunching with the stick. So you're getting all this tactile sensation. You're probably throwing the stick at something. You're using your brain to calculate trajectories. As you're walking on the uneven ground, your brain is constantly adjusting your balance. That's some more exercise for the brain. So just the being out in the wild, you know, hiking, I bet you feel really mentally great when you've been out hiking for a while, because you're finally giving the brain the, the sensory input, it evolved to constantly be seeking as opposed to just sitting on the couch and watching TV passively. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's the benefits of being outdoors. So the, the mental aspects are great, but then, and then going back to the walking on an uneven ground, they've shown the more time you spend walking on uneven ground, the stronger your core muscles are the better your balance is. So the people who spend lots of time doing this throughout their life are less likely when they are older to fall and break a hip. Their core muscles and their sense of balance, it's, you know, they got that muscle memory to avoid slipping and falling. So 
you know, the hikers, backpackers, hunters, fishermen, bird watchers, in general, they have much lower chances of slipping and falling and breaking a hip when they're elderly because their bodies, you know, have mastered the movements, if you will. So that's really useful. So the, the caveman lifestyles, the throwing of things and getting the sensory input, that leads to a lot of health benefits. And then, of course, eating wild foods, less processed foods, uh, that has its own thing. And of course, all the medicinal values in the foods too. I'd like to point out that coffee isn't the only plant that has a biochemical effect on people. There are lots and lots and lots of plants that the ancestors figured out have useful uses. Yeah. Tell us about the Medicine Man plant company that you've created. And now you're, you've created like these herbal medicines for people. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so ancient plants for modern issues. As a scientist, I, I have a master's in medicinal chemistry, a PhD in physical organic chemistry. So I have always spent my career seeking out the mole molecules you need to accomplish a particular job. For the first 18 years of the career, that was actually for the oil industry where I came up with environmentally friendly replacements for traditionally less friendly oil field chemicals. My first patent was using cinnamon as a corrosion inhibitor. But yeah, with the plants, there's a long history of plants that you know, cultures have used all around the world to treat specific, what I call lifestyle issues. You know, keeping people's liver acting the way the liver is supposed to, the kidneys, the brain, the, brain, the blood, uh, blood pressure and circulation, all these sort of things. So I've used my knowledge of plant chemistry, studying the traditional uses and coming up with scientifically backed traditional plant medicines, if you will. I always have to be careful using the word medicine, even though medicine and plant co uses it because the FDA has a very fine line <laughs> over things, but yeah. Um, and the, the goal of these products, uh, first off, having spent years in the manufacturing industry, I have trust issues. So everything gets tested before it goes into the, the mixers, during the mixers, after the finished products, make sure nothing bad has slipped in there. My goal is to bring back what the medicine men you know, 16,000 years ago would have offered. So there's no chemical fillers, no processing aids, anything like that. And one particular thing, the brain pill, or sorry, the liver pill, there is some flaxseed, which needed an antioxidant to keep it from spoiling. Flaxseed oil uh, can spoil over time that I tracked down a uh, antioxidant extracted from rosemary that's only available from one company, but it passes all the uh, USDA and FDA requirements for being a food preservative, but it's just a extract from ras uh, rosemary. So yeah, they got the brain pill, the liver pill, the libido pill, the blood pressure pill, the immune pill, the brain pill, coming out with more. So I'm curious about the brain pill. Is the brain pill one that you would recommend for anybody to take? I mean, when I hear brain pill, that to me sounds like something that could just like boost your overall mental well-being. So it's interesting with the brain pill, when I was creating that, I was really thinking about my parents because both of them are 86, 87 now. And I mean, still very good, but every so often I see some fuzziness on the edges. So I was using that. The brain pill is actually a mixture of three components. It has the lion's mane mushroom, which grows all over Minnesota there. It's a wonderful tasting mushroom. It looks like a hostess snowball stuck to a tree, but they've shown that extracts or compounds, the uh, beta glucans from the lion's mane mushroom actually increase the number of neural connections in the brain. So this helps especially with memory and recall. It also uh, has been shown to help lift mood. There's also sage in it, the sage leaf, you know, just regular you know, culinary sage, because that has been shown uh, to increase focus, 
mental endurance and acuity. If you think about you know, the term sage, the wise people sitting in their libraries, reading their books, they got their name because they were drinking lots of sage tea as part of their learning process. And then the last one, the ginkgo leaf. This is an Asian tree and it has been scientifically shown to increase the blood flow to the brain. When you bring more blood to the brain, you're bringing more oxygen and glucose to the brain that you know, the fuel and fire it needs to do all the thinking you are doing. So there's no caffeine or anything like that. And it's just the lion's mane, the sage, and the ginkgo leaf. That's fantastic. And so you were thinking of your parents when you made this. So it's it's really helping that older generation to keep their memory focused more, it sounds like. So your parents have used it, I'm guessing. Were they kind of your, your lab rats? <laughs> yeah, they were some of mine, yeah. So uh, yeah, every morning I have a, a Facebook show called The Donut Shop at the Beginning of the World, which is actually based on my parents. They've, they've traveled all over and everywhere they go, they end up with a group of, of friends at a donut shop. The friends are the people who are you know, hanging up the donut shop for years that my parents just invite themselves in to sit at the table and start talking to them. But uh, one of the things during it, we have the group take where you know, we take you know, those who have the Medicine Man products, they take it along with us and it's just a big social thing. So yeah, they're taking it there. The, the benefits, though, are for anyone who needs to use their brain a lot. So, you know, workers and you know, bloggers or anything, you know, wherever you would normally, you're just, your brain is getting fuzzy and tired and cranky and, you know, you just can't remember things. Salespeople, it's really good for them. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it could benefit yeah. loads of people, yeah. especially like if people are eating, like, like going back to like not connecting with our natural world, if you're like filling yourself with a bunch of like unhealthy stuff, I mean, is this type of thing, would you recommend this to people who aren't eating a well-balanced, like well-balanced food already? Would it still benefit them? Most definitely. Yes. Yes. Because every little bit helps. And in that case, I would actually recommend the liver pill to make sure the liver is up and functioning well. Because remember the liver pill is the waste disposal uh, organ of the body. So if you're taking a junk, it's up to the liver to get rid of it. So the quicker and more enzymatic action it can produce, the quicker you're getting rid of that junk. I do want to go back to the brain pill for just one minute. Um, my one personal concern with the brain pill is giving it to people who, you know, children whose brain hasn't completely developed. There are a number of research papers that show things like lion's mane and sage and ginkgo do help, uh, children with attention deficit disorder issues. But at the same time, I personally feel if you're, the best thing is just get them outside, get them interacting with nature the way we were supposed to be interacting with nature. Don't just give them drugs. Even if these drugs are plants that we have been using for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years, because there's still long-term effects that are unknown. Uh, and just to go sideways for a second uh, with marijuana, if I can bring this up, there's a lot of show that, you know, if you're adults and marijuana doesn't cause many problems, but if you are younger kids where your brain is not fully developed, the interaction of the brain with the THC really causes some long-term significant damage. And so I, I just worry about that with the brain pill, you know, get them outside, get them interacting with nature, give them a stick to throw at other sticks. Don't necessarily give them the brain pill. Yeah. Really, really good to hear about that. I mean, yeah, kids getting outside, there's so many benefits to that. And going back to like, you were talking about, like attention deficit disorder. I'm guessing that you've heard of Last Child in the Woods and have read that book. 
Oh, very much. I love that book. Yes. I believe that should be a guiding principle in our school system. Oh yeah. 100%. I, I teach outdoor preschool. So awesome. this, yeah, this is all very, like, I see the benefits of it on a daily basis and of kids getting outdoors and the fresh, fresh air and the sticks and the climbing on trees. It's yeah, there's yep. 8 million benefits to it. Definitely. Um, yeah. So how has this benefited your own family? I mean, you said you were raised like foraging at a young age. Do you teach your own family this lifestyle? Yeah. In fact, my my older daughter, she's 18 now and a senior in high school. But in first grade, we got a call from the principal at her school saying, you know, Dr. Vorderbergen, uh, there's a problem. And your daughter has been feeding kids plants on the playground. And I didn't say anything. She's like, you there? And yeah, I'm just waiting to hear what the problem is. Because <laughs> I, from a young age, especially with her, I'd been taking her out as my assistant on classes and she learned everything. My goal was someday that she would take over foraging Texas from me. Um, but yeah, the, the school district did not think it was good for her to be feeding the kids purslane and dandelion greens and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, that led us to homeschooling for many years. But even in my family's diet, uh, I live in suburbia. I live in a suburb of Houston. My backyard is 30 feet deep by 70 feet wide. And I've created what's called a permaculture food forest where I have a complete self-sustaining ecosystem made out of edible plants. Normally people would make these out of domesticated plants, but I've made them out of wild plants. The last time I took a inventory, 2018, there were 81 different wild edible and drinkable and medicinal plants in my backyard. So I try and get about 10% of our family's food just from my backyard. And also the other neighbors around you know, the neighborhood, because that saves us money. It also gives me a reason to talk and meet the neighbors. Uh, we've been in this house 22 years now. And I found now when someone new moves in, you know, I'll go knock on the door, hey, introduce myself. And you know, I, I kind of help keep the weeds free of the, you know, the yard. And they go, yeah, we, we were told about you. <laughs> and so, yeah, and I say, well, okay, just don't do it. put down fire ants. I'll take care of the fire ants. I'll hit them with some boiling water and I'll keep your yard free of weeds and uh, life is good, good. And they go, yeah, go for it. And then they want to know about it. But where this really came in handy is being in the hurricanes that have hit Houston. So not for the food, but for the social connection that had been built up in our neighborhood. You know, like John would say, hey, do you know anyone that has the sink installation wrench? It's like, yeah, I think Eric has one. And so I hook up John and Eric together and then Susie and Lisa, and, you know, and, and so over time, the neighbors get to know each other through me because I know what everyone has. And it just worked out good. Then when the hurricane hit, everyone knew each other. It was great, I'll, I'll tell you, in the apocalypse, you want the local school's head chef to be on your team because he knew the defrost times of everyone's meats and all their freezers. He organized big cooking parties. So while the, the cleanup crews were chopping up trees and clearing the streets and picking up the shingles and all that, he was organizing these big cookouts. Everyone's grills got pulled to the, the, to the, to the street. And so at the end of the day, we'd have a huge party for you know, a week at a time where we'd have this big long feast, the picnic tables would be brought out, all this sort of thing. Um, it was, everyone was actually kind of disappointed when the power came back on because it was just enough of a disaster. No one really suffered financially. The houses in our area weren't destroyed, but everyone got to take a break. They said it was like an adult summer camp. One night we had tango lessons. It was awesome. <laughs> you know, just because everyone was out there. Um, I can't take full credit. The neighborhood has been very welcoming, but I think it's one of those things where if you go and welcome neighbors, 
they like that. If you just hide from the neighbors, they're gonna hide from you. So someone has to be the first step in welcoming neighbors. And if it involves asking if you can eat the weeds from their yard, it kind of, it's not a question they expect. And so it, it, it definitely breaks the ice. Right. And I mean, yeah, it's, I, I love that you go around and do that. It definitely helps connect, make connections and form community too. And I mean, the fact that you guys were all together, like, like this adult camp, like you were saying, I mean, I think that's so great <laughs> yeah. because it, it's getting people back to their roots also and connecting humans and connecting us to what we should be doing. Actually, I have a funny story also from the hurricane time. So I don't know if you realize up there in Minnesota, but the white pine, the inner bark of that not only is edible, but it's actually delicious. I had no so idea. It, yeah, it was a key food of the Ojibwe all the way over to the Adirondack out in New York. In Boy Scouts, we called it the bacon tree, the white pine, because you can peel out the inner bark into thin strips about the thickness of a potato chip roast it in a cast iron pan over a fire and it tastes like hickory smoked bacon. It's awesome, it's wonderful. This is the bark on the tree. The inner bark, so not the outer brown. After you peel that out, you get to the inner, the cambium layer, the living layer, that inner, the first layer of white that you see after the, the brown bark. Okay, and again, this is where I need a professional to go out with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably be back up in Minnesota in, in the fall here, we'll work something up, but uh, yeah. I, I joke, every time I go up to Minnesota, I have to get some White Castle burgers and some white pine bark because those are the two things I can't get down in Texas. Down here, we have the loblolly pine, which is still edible. Uh, in fact, after the hurricane, there were a bunch of loblollies down all over the neighborhood. So I was going from tree to tree with my tomahawk and my cast iron stove and my little cook set, waving at the neighbors, slicing parts of their tree and eating it. And it was okay, but it was very resiny. And turns out that's because down here in Houston, it's pretty much always warm and muggy. And so fungus is a problem. And so the resin, the sap of the pine tree, it's what the tree uses to protect itself from fungus getting in and attacking the tree. Up in Minnesota and up in the north there, the pine trees, they don't have as big an issue with fungus, so they don't have to produce as much resin. So the, the inner bark tastes really good. The inner bark down here tastes Vaguely, if you use your imagination, you can tell yourself it's rosemary, but it kind of tastes like pine salt. <laughs> use your imagination. So, I mean, I can only imagine all of the things that you've tried that that haven't really tasted good, but do you just use your imagination for, for a lot of things to trick yourself into thinking they're good? Uh, so one of the best seasonings is hunger. So, but there are tricks, especially like dealing with bitter compounds and learning to mix which plants with which, uh, like the, the tongue, the taste buds, uh, you register bitter, you register salty, you register sweet, you register sour. Sour overrides bitter. So if you're trying to eat a bitter food, you wanna mix something sour with it. And that kind of neutralizes the bitter and also reduces the sour some. And the end result is actually pretty good. Definitely, yeah, mixing the right flavors and, I mean, there's all types of things you could do out there. You all, so you also mentioned you made a, a, a book. You have a foraging book? Yeah, so Idiot's Guide Foraging, it's part of the Idiot's Guide series. Uh, came out in 2015, 2016. And the, the goal of it was to actually make a foraging book that was useful for people. The publishers, their request was first that it covered all of North America 
and that it did not require going off into the deep woods. They wanted it to be things people could find around their neighborhood, around society, you know, in the, the edges of the woods and the places where people actually go. So, and that was really easy to do because that's where most of the edible plants are, is right around you rather than out in the deep woods. And I can go for hours why you're better off looking around your neighborhood than you know, out in the deep woods to look for wild foods, but it has to do with plant diversity and borders. But yeah, Idiot's Guide Foraging, I actually just got contacted by the publisher. They want to reissue it. Uh, it's out of print, but they're going to reissue it under their outdoors guides uh, thing. Uh, one of the issues, well, there were two issues with the Idiot's Guide Foraging. One, it was a very physically large book, very big. And it did have 30 recipes in it, but they were foodie, fancy, show off your cooking skills sort of food. For the outdoors guide, the plan is to shrink the size of the book, increase, you know, physically shrink it down, but still keep the multiple pictures. But the main thing will be changing the recipes to more campfire cooking type stuff. So we're, we're still working on the, because like the, the editor has to talk to his boss and get it all confirmed and so forth. But that's right now the plan is to re-release it modified for backpackers and campers and hikers and those sort of people. Yeah, because those sort of people are looking for a, a nice size book that they can bring out. Nothing, no textbooks. <laughs> yep, yep. And the first one was a bit textbooky. Not, uh, you know, not word-wise. Uh, one of the things with the book is each plant had five big pictures of it. And then if there was any sort of poisonous mimic, there was a side-by-side -side picture with a, a bunch of details on how to tell the poisonous from the, the non-poisonous but we're, we're redoing it, making it a little more backpack friendly. Awesome. Awesome. And so you have the book and where else can people find information about you? You also mentioned you do a video each week. Yeah. The center of everything is foragingtexas.com, foragingtexas.com. From there, you can link over to my YouTube channel with hundreds of, well, over a hundred hours of videos and there's more on the way. It has all the 225 current plants. Uh, it has all my other podcast interviews and radio and TV and stuff like that. Links to purchase my book and other books that I've helped with. So it's it's all starts there. The Facebook every day I try and post some plant sort of thing. So oh, fantastic! I'm gonna go over and join that now and hopefully start to learn a little bit more about foraging so I can feel more confident in my abilities. It's easy. I tell people, if you can tell the difference between a peach and a nectarine, you have the observational skills necessary to learn edible plants. You just need to put a little time in and trust and trust yeah. yourself. And if you can't you know, have someone to walk by and show it to you, that's the main thing with my classes is giving, getting people over that initial fear. They want something to confirm. So there's a lot of, okay, what do you think this is after, you know, show them once at the beginning of the class and then go back, you know, and say, okay, We've seen this. What is it? And they think, oh, it's such and such. It's like, there, you got it. Great. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. I mean, you make it, that sounds so simple. It's it's like learning anything else, like learning mathematics or a different language. You know, you just need to put the time in art history. You know, it's just, it's all about structural features and matching the structural features. And one good thing, so there's a basically a secret guild of foraging instructors and authors. And we've all agreed on kind of the structural features that we will focus on on the plants to help people identify it. So regardless of the author or the book, the skills you develop using one is instantly transferable to all the others. Right, right. So find a basis, the foundation, and then 
go more from there. Well, fantastic, Mark. Thank you. This has been awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add? So one last thing, if I may, going back to medicinal plants, I want people to think about something here. So think evolution. I already talked about the evolutionary benefits of just walking around outside, but let's look at the plants for a second. Something I like to point out to people, if you go back to survival of the fittest, that's kind of the key premise of evolution. The members of the species that are most fit for their ecosystem are the ones that survive the best, pass on their genes and on and on and on and on. So going to the medicinal plants, the people who, the ancestors who responded best to the beneficial properties of those plants ended up being the most fit. They're the ones passing on their genes. So really we are genetically designed to respond properly to medicinal plants. In the pharmaceutical world, it's more about convenience. It's easy, relatively speaking, easy to make a drug, put it in a, in a pill, put it on a shelf. With plants, there's a lot more labor involved and time and effort, and you have to be careful and the spoilage and all this sort of thing. So I like to say, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, they supply the masses, the elite still use the herbs because that's what we evolved to use at a deeper, you know, down to our genetic code. And then all the other caveman actions too. Get out there, throw sticks at things, you know, splash through the water, balance on rocks, you know, let your inner caveman experience the world that it, it evolved in. Yeah, totally. I love that. Like exactly. It is just getting back to, to your roots. And I love that you said that it's just the pharmaceuticals create so much more and we, we are naturally made to eat what is out there. I mean, that's a good way to look at it, but it's also, like I said, cause people aren't used to it. It can be daunting and a little bit scary. So yep. thank you for that perspective. Baby steps. It's all baby steps. You got time. And the more you do it, the healthier it'll be. So the more time you'll have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life. <laughs>